Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. It was 40 minutes before showtime, and David Bowie was missing. This was never a good thing, but especially not tonight. It was the final date of his Ziggy Stardust tour, the 16-month trek that had taken him from the sleepy English suburbs to America, Japan, and beyond. The tour had begun in the back of a pub. Now he was playing the hometown hero at London's Hammersmith Odeon Arena. The show was being filmed for posterity, and high-profile friends like Mick Jagger, Lou Reed, and Ringo Starr were there to cheer him on. Thousands of fans had gathered outside the venue on the summer's night in July 1973. Many came dressed as their idol, with spiky day-glow hair, shiny sequined pants, and dangerously tall platform heels. Their faces were decorated with glittery disco droog eye makeup and brightly painted lightning bolts. One of these fans was a 13-year-old East London schoolgirl named Julie. Waiting outside, she spotted a pale figure pacing anxiously amid the garbage in an otherwise deserted alley behind the venue. He looked like just another Bowie clone ready for the show. But then Julie noticed his mismatched eyes and slowly it dawned on her. This was no clone. She gingerly approached, eager to offer a few words of praise and thanks. As he beckoned her over, she quickly realized something was very wrong. David was worryingly thin and disheveled. His famous eyes were filled with tears. He'd fled his dressing room for a moment of solitude, but now he seemed relieved to have someone to talk to for a few precious minutes. The torment had been building for months, years even, and he was desperate to unload. David didn't know who he was anymore. Was he Ziggy Stardust? David Bowie? David Jones? He called his latest character Aladdin Sane for a reason. He was heading towards the brink of insanity, A complete physical and psychological collapse seemed imminent. He could feel it coming. He was going mad, he confided to Julie, as his nicotine-stained hands drew another cigarette to his lips. Everything had gone right, but then all so wrong. His marriage was all but over. His finances were a mess. Though he didn't say it, his flirtation with cocaine was wreaking havoc on his nervous system. Something had to change, and fast. David spied some frantic roadies sent to track him down. It was time to go. 
He said goodbye to Julie and bounded back inside the theater, past the guards, down the hall, up the backstage stairs to a balcony overlooking the street. From there, he surveyed the scene, staring out at his fans waiting outside, the blessed who'd remodeled themselves in his image. To them, he was a god, and he was about to forsake them. But he had to. He had to save himself. His manager's impatient bark brought David down to his dressing room. He stared in the mirror as assistants touched up his makeup, the fragile face with the injured eye. It looked back at him like a stranger. He knew what he had to do. David Bowie was about to commit murder on the stage. He was about to kill off his greatest creation, Ziggy Stardust. The clock's ticking. Lights down, volume up, showtime. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today's episode looks at Aladdin Sane, the American sibling of Ziggy Stardust. The character was born on the road as Bowie embarked on his triumphant first tour of the United States. It seemed like everything he had worked towards was coming true, yet David felt more confused than ever. With his face bisected by his trademark lightning bolt, the character reflects an artist coming apart at the seams. The multiple identities David crafted had originally brought him personal and creative freedom. Now they threaten to tear him apart. As the name suggests, Aladdin Sane is a troubling self-portrait of a man on the brink. It was all David could do to pull himself back from the edge. Passengers aboard the Queen Elizabeth II were settling into the ship's fine dining room when a strange figure appeared in their midst. David Bowie had made his entrance in full Ziggy Stardust regalia. It was a black tie version of one of his stage costumes, complete with wings protruding from his shoulders. It certainly made an impression. Some people gasped. Others coughed up their soup. They're all looking at me, David complained to his dinner companions. Well, what did you expect, came the reply. For the remainder of his journey, David took his meals inside his cabin. It was September 1972. David was en route to New York to kick off his first tour of the United States. Rather than take the relatively quick flight from London, he and his wife Angie had opted for a costly yet refined week on the high seas. It was, quite literally, the only way to travel. By this point, David had developed a serious phobia of flying. It began during a recent vacation to Cyprus when his plane had been in an electrical storm and struck by lightning. Soon after, his dead father appeared to him in a dream and advised him never to fly again. That was enough for David. If it flies, it's death, became his familiar mantra. His fear was so intense that, for a time, he refused to stay in hotel rooms higher than the fourth floor. David's manager, the cigar-chomping, compulsively fur-coat-clad Tony DeFreeze, saw David's phobia as an asset. It made great copy, adding to the eccentric allure of his most important client. Rockers like Led Zeppelin and Elton John could keep their private jets. Ocean liners were a throwback to the glamour icons of the 1920s and 30s, making it the ideal mode of transport for his rising star. And make no mistake, David was a star. Even if no one else knew it yet. For years, British acts wanting to crack the United States had to start from scratch, schlepping around small venues and playing third on the bill to homegrown American heroes. Eventually, if they were lucky, buzz would start to build. Tony DeFreeze planned to skip the whole toil and obscurity part. 
David Bowie would arrive on American shores as an A-lister. Soon enough, everyone else would have to catch on. DeFries insisted that David would never open for anyone, but always headline. He wrote outrageous clauses into his performance contracts, demanding the largest grand piano in the city for each gig. Anything less than nine feet long would result in the show's immediate cancellation. If a venue didn't have a private walkway from the entrance to the dressing room, they would have to construct a wall so David could remain unseen until showtime. In return, David was expected to act like a headliner. DeFries booked David into weekends at high-end hotels so he could get used to VIP treatment. A big and brooding Yorkshireman named Stewie George was hired as David's personal bodyguard, and together they rehearsed sprinting out of venues into one of three vans left idling outside. They'd grown up with scenes of Beatlemania. Now they were planning for Bowie-mania. So far, only the Fab Four had pulled off such an ambitious Atlantic crossing. Tony DeFries planned to do it again with Bowie. To announce the upcoming U.S. tour, he flew over top American journalists from Rolling Stone and Playboy for an all-expense-paid deluxe weekend. The scribes were wined and dined at the Dorchester Hotel before being greeted by Bowie himself, who encouraged one and all to call him Ziggy. Lou Reed and Iggy Pop were on hand for an added dose of chaos before they all trucked over to the Friars Club to watch Bowie in concert. The cocktails, hors d'oeuvres, and hotel suites set to freeze back some 20,000 pounds, but it was a small price to pay for column inches. A glut of glowing magazine features made David one of the most talked-about performers in the States, and he hadn't even played a note there. To aid in his American assault, DeFries set up a field office in New York City for his newly formed management company. It was called Main Man. David loved the name, naturally assuming that it referred to himself. But it soon became obvious that DeFries saw himself as the main man, which would lead to some clashes down the line. The expensive offices in midtown Manhattan functioned chiefly as an opulent stage set designed to project strength, importance, and above all, success. The rooms were decorated with elegant leather armchairs and framed portraits of David. Desks were piled high with expense charges written on custom main man stationery. It looked amazing, but the suggestion of immense wealth was purely a facade. DeFries took a similar approach with his employees, who were hired more for their flamboyant sense of style than any professional skills. The New York main man office was staffed with an outrageous cast of freaks from Andy Warhol's factory scene. Tony Zanetta, who'd become friends with David the prior year when he performed in the Warhol stage play Pork, was installed as main man's president. Fellow Pork veteran Lee Black Childers was tapped as vice president, and Cherry Vanilla filled out the ranks as publicity officer. Cherry was the only one with any business experience, but that didn't seem to bother anyone. In fact, that was their selling point. They were wild rule breakers, capable of causing a sensation and looking absolutely fabulous while doing it. This was much more in line with the image DeFries was trying to convey. The main man staff were urged to act and look like a million dollars. This involved pretending that they had a million dollars. They were turned loose with company credit cards and encouraged to pay for lavish meals with enormous groups of industry insiders. Main man had their own expense account at Max's Kansas City, the late night haunt of the downtown elite. A fleet of limousines were kept on constant call. On top of their $100 a week salary, staffers had their rent paid. So did a group known as the FODs, or Friends of David, people who had no tangible role within the company. 
This was all part of DeFree's overarching philosophy, you have to spend money to make money. But whose money was it? Where was it coming from? It was a question that nobody bothered to ask. They were too busy launching a star. In an effort to build an extra layer of mystique around David, DeFreeze turned down nearly all interviews. Instead, requests were forwarded to Cherry Vanilla, who took a somewhat unorthodox approach to her role as David's public relations officer. Once, she flashed the crowd at a press conference. Another time, she bit the rear end of a female reporter. And then there was the time she went on American radio and told listeners that David was not only gay, but a communist to boot. The Warholian main man staff knew little about David's actual life, so they felt free to embellish when appropriate. And also inappropriate. Sex was usually a talking point. Cherry Vanilla frequently described David to reporters as, quote, the sexual antichrist. During one high-profile radio interview, she claimed that David made a point to sleep with everyone who worked for him. The following day, main man offices were flooded with job applications. By the time he docked in New York in early September, the city was buzzing for Bowie. Members of the press were on hand to cover his arrival. Profiles ran in Time, Newsweek, and Rolling Stone, the latter of which included this memorable description. His hair, dyed bright carrot, sticks straight up above the brow. His smooth white skin is stretched from bone to bone in his face like telegraph wire along poles. He changes expression constantly as wind blowing across a lake, instantly as static electricity. Everything about his appearance is extreme. Advertisements for Bowie's album and tour towered over the streets and avenues. Brick walls bore chalk scrawls bearing the words, Ziggy Rules. Considering David's tour had begun in the back of a pub six months earlier, this was all pretty far out. David had some serious business to attend to as he settled into his plush suite at the Plaza Hotel. It was decided to supplement his backing band, now touted as the famous Spiders from Mars, with a new keyboard player, and they had just five days to find one. Mike Garson came highly recommended. With a background in avant-garde jazz, he'd logged time backing the likes of Mel Torme, Nancy Wilson, and Martha Reeves. Now he was eking out a living in tiny tourist clubs for five bucks a night. He'd begun to think, man, I think I really need to go out on the road with a famous rock star. Soon his wish was granted. That September, he got a call from Main Man asking if he wanted to audition for the Ziggy Stardust tour. Garson had never heard of Ziggy, or Bowie for that matter, but it was either that or go back to teaching piano lessons. He showed up at the RCA Studios, where Bowie's guitarist and de facto musical director Mick Ronson placed sheet music on the piano. Garson sight-read it on the spot, adding jazzy flourishes as he went. He only played about seven seconds before Ronson stopped him. He had the gig. Garson would become a crucial component of Bowie's sound over the next few years, mastering classical, jazz, pop, gospel, pretty much everything but rock. And that's what Bowie loved about him. Garson, who was rumored to have practiced eight hours a day for 10 years, brought a studied intensity to the band. Bowie referred to the keyboardist, who was a devout Scientologist at the time, as Garson the Parson. After some quick rehearsals, Bowie was finally ready to make his American debut. It had been scheduled for September 22nd in Cleveland, the heartland rock capital where a local kid had formed the first U.S. Bowie fan club. Due to David's no-fly policy, the band and crew made the long trip from New York by bus. 
DeFries had drafted Tony Zanetta to act as tour manager, but the title meant nothing to him. What does the road manager do, Zanetta asked DeFries. Just make sure they find Cleveland, came the impatient reply. DeFries was busy doing battle with the Cleveland promoter, who'd failed to provide a properly huge baby grand piano. DeFries was ready to pull the plug on the show before the concert organizers borrowed a suitably enormous set of keys from the city's symphony orchestra. A sold-out crowd of 32,000 people packed into the Cleveland Music Hall to watch Ziggy Stardust, live and in the flesh. The screams were so loud that Mike Garson resorted to stuffing cotton in his ears. In the end, the audience couldn't contain themselves and invaded the stage. Afterwards, David met a 21-year-old fan from Akron named Chrissy Hind, future frontwoman of the Pretenders. She and her friends chauffeured him around in her mother's Oldsmobile to get a meal. How's that for some good old-fashioned American hospitality? David's first concert in America had been a resounding success, but the real test was still to come, in New York City. If he could make it there, he could make it anywhere. He was booked to play Carnegie Hall. The Beatles had been the first band to rock the hallowed venue on their triumphant American debut in 1964. Eight years later, David was hoping for similar luck. For all of their promotional fireworks, his records weren't selling in the States. It was crucial that he win over this media mecca. The main man Warhol contingent were tasked with distributing tickets to the great and good of the New York glitterati, most of whom had never even heard of David. Seats were given to Truman Capote, Jackie Kennedy's sister Lee Razawill, Todd Rundgren, and the New York Dolls. Cherry Vanilla would later say, We peddled David's ass like Nathan sells hot dogs. The show was hyped into the social event of the season. Andy Warhol was limited to just two tickets, and Atlantic Records chief Ahmet Erdogan reportedly couldn't get his hands on any. Main Man received 400 applications for the 100 press seats available. Scalpers on 7th Avenue were making upwards of $50 on tickets with a face value of 6 bucks. On the night of the concert, Klieg lights on the steps of Carnegie Hall lit up the sky like a classic Hollywood film premiere. The marquee bore the words, Fall in love with David Bowie. It was a declaration fulfilled. Any semblance of New York cool had melted away by the end of the show as newly minted Bowie fanatics were dancing in Carnegie Hall's historic aisles. Despite being feverish with the flu, David earned a rapturous five-minute ovation. The press were equally enthusiastic. A star is born. I've always wanted to write that in a review, and now I can, gushed one reporter. Another declared, the 60s are well and truly over. The publicity led to an influx of requests from promoters, and soon the eight-date tour swelled to include an additional eight weeks. Bowie mania was beginning. D.C., Boston, Kansas City, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Salt Lake City. David's tour bus barreled down the long stretches of highway past the ever-changing landscape. Cities turned to forests, which turned to deserts. David was living out his cherished fantasies of Jack Kerouac's characters in On the Road, the book that had liberated his imagination as a young boy. As is so often the case, the fantasy doesn't always equal the reality. On his first journey to America the year before, a man in Texas waved a gun at David for wearing a dress. This trip featured similar hostilities as he struggled to connect in the South. Members of the Ku Klux Klan came out in droves to picket his gig in Nashville, objecting to David's bisexuality and supposed communist sympathies. David arrived at 10,000-seat arenas in St. Louis, Kansas City, and Miami, 
only to find that a few hundred people had bothered to turn up. Ever the pro, he gathered the small crowd into the front rows and performed an intimate cabaret-style set just for them. Dates in Dallas and Houston sold so poorly that DeFreeze had to cancel them completely. Even if the shows were a bust, they had fun as they made their way through the American heartland. David and his band loved to crash the sleepy hotel cocktail lounges in full Ziggy Stardust makeup and costumes, just to see the open-mouthed stares of the usual clientele. Sometimes they had too much fun. One morning, road manager Tony Zanetta got a frantic call. David was missing. The crew was packed up and ready to go, but their star was nowhere to be found. A short time later, Zanetta got another call. It was David. He had no idea where he was. I'm in a house. There are trees everywhere. I think I'm in the middle of a forest somewhere. Somehow, a bellhop at the band's hotel was able to work out David's location based on that sketchy description, and disaster was averted. This time. The partying came to a head in late October when the Ziggy Stardust tour pooled into Los Angeles. By then, the entourage had grown to 46 people, including an assortment of drug dealers, groupies, a professional palm reader, and Diggy Pop, just for the hell of it. All were booked into the ultra-luxe Beverly Hills Hotel, at RCA's expense. Most spent their days lounging by the pool and ordering huge meals of lobster thermidor for themselves and random tourists they met strolling Hollywood Boulevard. All were welcome. Just send the bill to RCA Records and Tapes. David liked L.A. It suited his lust for glamour, insatiable hedonism, and compulsive need for chameleonic character changes. He was surprisingly sober during this time, wanting to keep a clear head for the pair of make-or-break dates at the Santa Monica Civic Center. His chief outlet was sex. His bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel hosted a parade of local groupies, visions and glitter and platforms. His latest serious fling was with Andy Warhol's newest factory girl, 19-year-old Sarinda Fox, who would later go on to marry Aerosmith Steven Tyler. David liked her so much, he called her into his room to chat while he was in the middle of having sex with other women. This was quite a compliment. One night, she, David, and Angie had a threesome involving a bathtub, Lady Godiva wig, and lots of pearls. Stories of David's seduction are endless. Once, at a party, he set his sight on a woman dancing with music producer Kim Fowley. David sidled up to Fowley and politely asked, Are you in love with this woman, or may I take her into the bathroom? Receiving no objection, David approached the woman with a well-honed pickup line. How do you do? I'm David Bowie. I'd like to discuss life or the universal whatever, my dear. Hand in hand, they went off in search of a restroom. A gang of jealous drag queens followed in hot pursuit, all eager for their private moment with Ziggy. David's sexual prowess, to say nothing of his impressive physical attributes, has been widely commented upon. He was a romantic, described as a tender yet aerobic lover and an excellent kisser. To quote Cherry Vanilla, his one-time PR manager and occasional romantic partner, it never felt like we were just having sex. It felt like we were really making love. He was either a fabulous actor or a man whose emotions ran deep. David's voracious sexual appetite was slightly frightening to some members of his inner circle. He seemed down for it any time, anywhere in the limo, in the bathroom, on the sidewalk in front of the hotel. Back in his days as a student at Bromley Tech, David used sex as a power play to capture attention. 
His newfound fame only amplified this tendency, and the effect was startling. Cherry Vanilla, who shared a bed with him on more than one occasion, believed he was a sex addict. Another intimate would describe him less charitably in this period as, quote, screwing everything that moved, and quite a bit that didn't. The crude joke took on a scary realism one night at his hotel, when a sinister member of the Hollywood show business elite offered to procure a dead body for his pleasure. Still warm if he liked. David was deeply horrified and rejected the indecent overture. However, there is the troubling claim of Lori Maddox, a member of the so-called baby groupies clique of teenagers that hung around with visiting musicians who roamed the Sunset Strip clubland at night. Also known as Lori Lightning, Maddox is perhaps most famous for her tempestuous relationship with Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page when she was a minor. Prior to that, she said she lost her virginity to David Bowie during the Ziggy Stardust tour when she was 15 years old. Her version of events has varied considerably over the years and occasionally features historical impossibilities, leading some to doubt her story. But she's repeated the general gist for decades and tells her tale with utmost fondness. The way it happened was so beautiful, Maddox said in 2015. I remember him looking like God and having me over a table. Who wouldn't want to lose their virginity to David Bowie? To this day, Maddox claims that her experience with Bowie was not only consensual, but also a cherished memory, creating a thorny moral quandary for herself and also Bowie's fans. If 26-year-old David had sex with a minor, it makes the claims of his supposed sex addiction all the more serious and concerning. Yet Maddox always rebuffed those who sought to label her a victim. While she admits that her perception has shifted following the rise of the Me Too movement, she still denies that she was ever taken advantage of by Bowie. We were friends, she says. It was all pure fun. It was a different time in rock and roll. In that era, some of the world's most famous rock stars shamelessly engaged in relationships with young girls. Some of these women have no regrets, while others remain scarred by their experiences. At the time, it was just an accepted part of the Hollywood music scene, which was becoming increasingly dark and menacing as rock and roll became a billion-dollar business. A sense of darkness has started to creep into David's life. There were days when he could barely rouse himself from his bed. He often stayed in his hotel room, writing, reading, or just staring at the television. He was described in this period as a frail, chalk-white figure with almost vampiric tendencies. Maybe that was the effect David was going for. When a friend asked why he wasn't soaking up the Southern California sun by the hotel pool, David solemnly replied, I'll melt. The low lows seemed like the logical inverse of his performance highs, both sexual and musical, but it was also something deeper. The public persona of David Bowie overlaid with the even more outrageous Ziggy Stardust alter ego, had caused the boy from Bromley's identity to fracture. He'd later say, In Los Angeles, I was surrounded with people who indulged my ego, who treated me as Ziggy Stardust, never realizing that David Jones might be behind it. His biggest fear was coming true. His grip on reality was starting to slip. Would the curse of his familial mental illness claim him too, like it had claimed his beloved half-brother, Terry? David found himself paying an enormous psychic price for his fame, and a financial one, too. Their stay at the Beverly Hills Hotel cost $100,000, including $20,000 in room service bills alone. DeFree's sole attempt at cost-cutting was to decree that groupies be sent home without breakfast. 
the 71-day tour lost $485,000, or $7,000 a day. The silver-tongued DeFries talked RCA into paying off the debt, a move that caused the cancellation of the label's annual Christmas bonus that year. In exchange, RCA would recoup its losses from Bowie's future record sales. In other words, RCA would pay now, but Bowie would pay later. It would take some time for David to realize that he was footing the bill for this traveling circus and to freeze increasingly ambitious schemes. RCA didn't have to wait long for new Bowie product. America did wonders for his creativity. A new album began to take shape, inspired by Davis' cautious embrace of the country that had embraced him so warmly. His jubilant first visit the previous year had planted the seeds of Ziggy Stardust. Now, a portrait of Ziggy's disturbed and paranoid sibling began to emerge. David had seen the real America from his vantage point on his tour bus. It thrilled him, but it also frightened him. When I was a boy, we were all fascinated by America, he glumly told the journalist. But now that I'm here, I've forgotten why I wanted to come. His personal on-the-road adventure in the United States of Richard Nixon didn't match up to the one Jack Kerouac had presented. David had expected freedom and opportunity. He found it, but he also found urban decay, addiction, violence, and death. If I'm in a very light mood, I find everything in America so kitsch, he explained. It's wonderful, and I love to have it all hanging in my bedroom. If I'm in a bad mood, I find it terribly repressive and heavy. He declared the United States to be the loneliest place in the world and the people insecure and in need of warmth. Perhaps the fundamentally shy man who never got enough hugs as a child recognized himself among the Yanks. His thoughts crystallized as he sailed home to England that December. He spent most of the sea voyage curled in an overstuffed armchair in his suite, thumbing through a copy of author Evelyn Wall's Vile Bodies. It was a futuristic novel about a hedonistic society of bright young things, living a life of decadent depravity on the eve of an impending world war. Wall's tale of frivolity on the brink of catastrophe resonated with Bowie. To him, this wasn't sci-fi, but a chilling reflection of reality as he saw it. If the Ziggy Stardust opening track Five Years is any indication, David really seemed to think that the planet Earth wouldn't survive into the 80s. Setting aside his copy of Vile Bodies, he reached for the spiral notebook on the small mahogany table at his side and began to write the words to a new song. It's my interpretation of what America means to me, he'd say. It's like a summation of my first American tour. His schizophrenic impression of the country, to say nothing of his preoccupation with the mental illness that blighted his family, inspired his new character, Aladdin Sane. He was welcomed home on British shores like a triumphant war hero. Bowie's back, trumpeted the full-page ads that filled the music papers. Shows for his upcoming UK tour dates had already sold out, and he had big things planned for 1973. David managed to carve out time to celebrate Christmas with his wife Angie and toddler Zoe at their house, Haddon Hall. It would be the last holiday they'd spend at their beloved home, and more or less the last they'd spend together as a happy family. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah Yeah Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. During the final dates of the Ziggy Stardust tour, a fan snatched David's wedding bracelet off his wrist, twin to the one worn by his wife, Angie. The theft was highly symbolic. Barely into its second year, their marriage was, in David's own words, pretty much over in all but name. They would see less and less of one another in 1973. Jealousy played a sizable role in the disintegration of their union. They had always enjoyed an extremely open relationship, but many in their circle felt that David was overdoing his freedom just a bit. Angie was inclined to agree. She would later say that David was, quote, nailing everything that moved and characterized him as having, quote, the morals of a bisexual alley cat. As a result, Angie kept her distance. This was generally encouraged by Bowie and his coterie. They acted more like business partners than lovers, staying in different suites and generally living separate lives. For Angie, 
The tour was nothing but a string of increasingly humiliating incidents, sometimes in private, sometimes painfully public, but always involving her husband and groupies. Angie got her revenge by flaunting an affair with David's bodyguard. Never shy, they hooked up one night while skinny dipping in the motel pool. Motel management took a rather dim view of this sort of thing. David smoothed things over before rounding on Angie. She'd humiliated him before, like the night she performed oral sex on a friend in the middle of a closed but not empty hotel bar, but this was the final straw. The next day, he booked her a one-way ticket back to England. Aside from special occasions, Angie was never welcomed on his tours again. She'd been banished from his inner traveling circle. The betrayals weren't just sexual. After all, they were bonded not just by love and lust, but also by mutually shared ambition. As far as Angie was concerned, David broke a promise they'd made when they were both struggling and penniless. The plan was, once they made David a rock star, they'd turn their attention to her career, building her up into a world-famous performer in her own right. Angie felt she'd done her part by styling David, encouraging him, and serving as a dedicated creative collaborator. But David hadn't kept up his end of the deal. He was too caught up in the whirlwind of his own success to reciprocate. David felt he'd outgrown her. Angie felt there wasn't any room for her. She felt frustrated, even used. So she resorted to attention-grabbing stunts like sex in a public swimming pool to assert herself. This succeeded only in annoying David, who pushed her even further away. Angie didn't mind the space at first. Her acting ambitions kept her busy. She even auditioned for the role of TV's Wonder Woman, ultimately losing out when she refused to wear a bra for the screen test. But before long, she'd get a call from David. There was a new problem to solve, a new door to kick down, a new idea he wanted to run by her. Or he just missed her. Sooner or later, she'd be drawn back into the Bowie orbit, and her plans were put on hold. So the cycle continued, but it was clear there wasn't room for two prima donnas in this marriage. In the midst of this marital turmoil, David re-recorded a song called The Prettiest Star, written three years earlier as a tender ode to Angie. He'd first played it for her through the telephone as part of his marriage proposal back in 1969 and released it as a single soon after. His decision to revisit the song in late 1972, when the relationship was well and truly on the rocks, is a puzzling one. Perhaps it was his way of apologizing. Or maybe it was his way of saying goodbye. It was an anomaly on his album in progress, Aladdin Sane, which was written mostly while on tour in the United States. In a loose sense, the record was a sequel to Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Lacking any kind of narrative, the general theme was Ziggy Goes to America. The record was a travelogue by a stranger in a strange land, observations from an alien traversing the country in a chartered Greyhound bus. Each song served as a musical postcard from abroad. On the track list, place names were included next to each title, notating the location where each song was composed. The first of these was conceived somewhere between Cleveland and Memphis during a bus ride jam session. Bowie, his old friend George Underwood, and Mick Ronson beat out an impromptu version of Bo Diddley's I'm a Man, which soon morphed into an original song called Bussin'. The song got new words a few weeks later when Bowie visited his tour fling, Serinda Fox. Over discussions of the author Jean Genet, Bowie twisted the bluesy stomp into Gene Genie. He recorded the song in just one take days later at RCA Studios in New York, 
my first New York song, he'd remember proudly. In just 90 minutes, he had his new single. Another New York song was Watch That Man, inspired by the American characters who crammed into his suite for a particularly rowdy party at the Plaza Hotel. The scene reminded David of Evelyn Wall's vile bodies, passionate, bright young things partying while the world teetered on the brink of disaster. Drive-In Sunday, on the other hand, takes place after the apocalypse occurred. David was intrigued one night while gazing out at the desert vistas from an observation platform on a train journey through the southwest. Strange lights on the horizon gave him visions of a world after a nuclear catastrophe. David being David, he added sex and media to the plot. The song set in 2033, when humans have forgotten how to reproduce and need to watch old pornographic films as teaching tools. Panic in Detroit required less imagination. It was taken largely from the mouth of his friend and Motor City native Iggy Pop when the Ziggy Stardust tour passed through Detroit. Iggy kept David up all night by regaling him with tales from the 1967 riots, a time when teenage revolutionaries joyously discussed the day when the system would be obliterated by machine-gun-wielding kids. When Iggy finally left the room at daybreak, David peered out at the decayed urban ruin from his hotel suite. Slowly, the lyrics started to take shape. Cracked actor was pure L.A., a portrait of the sleaze and menace barely masked by a thin facade of glamour. The track was written during David's week in the City of Angels, inspired by strolls up and down Sunset Boulevard, an open marketplace for hookers and dealers to ply their wares. Even more intriguing to David were prostitutes of the legal variety, older producers preoccupied with sex, drugs, and money. They were quite strange-looking, quite charming, David would recall, but thoroughly unreal. The lyrics examined their debauched desires and sinister motivations. One only needs to look at the album's title track, Aladdin Sane, to understand the toll this globe-trotting venture was taking on David's psychological equilibrium. He was a man divided. On one hand, he wanted nothing more than to perform his songs for increasingly expansive audiences. On the other, the life of a rock and roll gypsy was beginning to wear on him. He found himself surrounded by users, sycophants, and drug casualties, whose grasp on reality seemed even more tenuous than his own. As he would say, there were some very mixed up people on that tour, including myself, and I didn't like myself very much at that time. Psychological subdivision through his many alter egos left him confused about exactly who was earning this mass adoration. It was clear that Ziggy was in charge. It was he who the crowd cheered for, who the interviewers clamored to talk to, who the labels wanted more product from. For the first time, David began to realize the downside of a hit on the scale of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. When he was effectively a nobody, he could explore creatively to his heart's content. Now there was an expectation, the artist's arch enemy. I felt for the first time and the only time that I was working for someone else, he'd say. Aladdin Same was effectively a continuation of Ziggy Stardust. David hated doing sequels, but he ceded to the label pressure and popular demand. The split was apparent in the album's cover, shot by legendary photographer Brian Duffy. David's face is bisected by a flashy lightning bolt. Makeup designer Pierre LaRoche borrowed the symbol from Elvis Presley, David's birthday twin, who used it as a personal logo for himself and his Memphis Mafia. For the king, the lightning meant taking care of business in a flash. In David's case, it represented his fractured psyche. Following early sessions in New York, 
David entered his familiar creative home at London's Trident Studios in January 1973 to complete the album. Recording was rapid. The day the sessions ended, David boarded a ship bound for America for another string of U.S. concert dates, designed to top his show from just a few months earlier. Everything about the 1973 U.S. concerts were bigger, grander, and more outrageous. DeFreeze had booked venues that were twice as large as the last tour. David had started integrating costumes into his performance, bringing the characters of Ziggy and Aladdin Sane to life with masks and clothes. He racked up as many as seven outfit changes per show, sometimes performing tearaway quick changes right on the stage. He brought along Pierre LaRoche to oversee his elaborate makeup, which took between two and five hours each night to apply. In addition to the thick lashings of eyeliner and silver lipstick, David adopted a gaudy silver disc painted in the center of his forehead, a version of the so-called love jewel worn by his former friend Calvin Mark Lee in the waning days of the 60s. Even the band was augmented with the additions of guitarist John Hutchison, a pair of sax players, and backing vocalist Jeffrey McCormick, a childhood friend of David's. The expansion allowed David more freedom to move around the stage, but it also caused friction with the original Spiders from Mars, who feared that they were being relegated to the thankless role of a solo star's anonymous backing band. The breakneck pace of recording and touring was taking a toll on intergroup relations. Gone was the all-for-one, one-for-all hippie spirit from their days sleeping on the floor at Haddon Hall. Sessions for Aladdin Sane had been particularly tense between David and drummer Woody Woodmansey, who'd refused to blindly yield to David's creative whims. But the real schism occurred on the eve of the tour, when the original Spiders found out how much new boy Mike Garson was being paid. It happened in the most painfully awkward way. Woodmansey was thumbing through a magazine when he saw an advertisement for a flashy Lamborghini. Wouldn't it be great to have one of those, he daydreamed aloud to Garson. Why don't you buy one, Garson replied. You must be able to afford one by now. Woody assured him that it was still way out of his budget. Garson was confused. After some hemming and hawing, the men compared salaries. That's when they learned that Garson was making ten times the salary of the original Spiders. The revelation led to a full-scale mutiny before the 1973 tour kicked off in New York City. Tony DeFreeze placated Mick Ronson with the promise of a main man solo deal, but Woody and bassist Trevor Boulder were on strike. No pay, no play. This is a joke, they complained to DeFreeze. Even the roadies are getting more than us. DeFreeze snapped back, Well, I'd rather give the money to the road crew than you. Things were eventually smoothed over, but the damage had been done. David viewed the mutiny as tantamount to treason. Relations between him and the rhythm section were never the same again. David took the stage as scheduled on Valentine's Day at Radio City Music Hall. The 6,000-seat venue was loaded with everyone from Andy Warhol and Salvador Dali to Allen Ginsberg and Truman Capote. David himself made an unforgettable entrance by descending 50 feet from the ceiling to the stage in a literal gilded cage, a prop he borrowed from the Rockette stage show. The audience had a great time, but the show wouldn't rank among David's favorites. Makeup man Pierre LaRoche had doused him with glitter for the first time, which mixed with David's sweat and ran into his eyes. I did the whole show almost blind, he complained. Then, as he delivered his rock and roll suicide finale, a fan leapt on stage and planted a kiss on David's cheek. David was so startled that he fainted, collapsing center stage. His timing was so impeccable that even the band thought it was just a new bit of drama for the song's climax. It wasn't until he was bodily carted off the stage that they realized anything was amiss. Blinded by glitter and smothered by fans, 
As far as omens go, these were not the best for David's new tour. But the 1973 American Trek generally went off without much of a hitch. It was a greatest hits reel, consolidating the successes of months earlier. He followed back-to-back Radio City shows with an astonishing seven concerts in Philadelphia, plus two in Memphis, two in Detroit, and two in L.A. After taking Hollywood, he continued west, all the way to Japan, for a ten-date tour. If Ziggy Stardust was a success in England and the States, it made an even bigger splash with the Japanese. The album had been selling non-stop in Japan, despite almost no promotional effort, ultimately remaining in the charts for two years. Though mocked by the highbrow Japanese press, Bowie had earned a passionate following with teenagers and college students. The attraction was understandable. Their culture was a major part of Ziggy Stardust's DNA. David had been drawn to Japanese styles, colors, and textures while designing Ziggy's costumes, crafting a look that was, in every sense, alien to Western audiences. The clothes, the makeup, the choreography. To the Japanese, Bowie was a rocked-up, larger-than-life reflection of their own cultural heritage. They illustrated the point quite literally by welcoming David with a massive 90-foot poster of his face, the largest poster in the world at the time, hung from a Tokyo skyscraper. The tour allowed David to delve deeper into Japanese drama. He was particularly intrigued by the theatrical style known as kabuki, a word meaning song, dance, and art. Characterized by elaborate makeup, garish costumes, and physical expressionism, it's easy to see why kabuki would appeal to David. In many ways, it was the Eastern counterpart to the mime work he'd done with Lindsay Kemp in the 60s. But Kabuki allowed for even greater freedom of expression. Exclusively male Kabuki actors portrayed both men and women, sometimes in the same scene, rapidly changing costumes to express this change of personality. For David, a man who swapped personas like clothes, this notion was especially compelling. His latest shows incorporated an ever-growing number of costumes crafted by Japanese designer Kansai Yamamoto. David met up with the future fashion icon upon his arrival in Tokyo to collect the nine outfits he'd commissioned for the Aladdin Sane tour. They were kabuki costumes with a sci-fi twist. Many could be torn off with a dramatic flourish to reveal a second outfit underneath. Some of these were done in more traditional modes, like the white satin kimono cape decorated with black and red Chinese letters that spelled out David Bowie phonetically. Less traditional was the space samurai costume, a quilted one-piece made of lustrous black, red, and blue fabric and lined with rows of black sequins. David would call on Yamamoto on at least one occasion during his stay to repair the damage to his clothes inflicted by overzealous fans. David was equally enthusiastic about Japan and its culture. When he wasn't performing, he explored the country, visiting bathhouses and fish markets, sampling sake and admiring Kyoto's famous cherry blossoms. He took in theatrical performances, fashion shows, and sumo wrestling competitions. He even went further afield to the outlying provinces where he marveled at the Shinto temples and elaborate dance rituals performed by the villagers. In a rare moment of unity, Angie and baby Zoe had come along for the tour, Together, they attended a tea ceremony at the Imperial Gardens. For a fleeting moment, they were just an ordinary family on vacation. Zoe would treasure the memories. It would be his last trip with both his parents. It would also be his first time seeing his father perform. The two-year-old was dressed for the occasion in a tiny kimono. It must have made quite an impression. As if seeing his father transform into Ziggy Stardust wasn't memorable enough, the audiences in Japan were unusually ardent. At one gig, they stomped so hard that they bent the enormous steel girders holding up the floor of the venue, which nearly caused the ceiling of Bowie's dressing room to collapse. 
David tried to give as good as he got. Assuming that the Japanese fans couldn't understand the word of his lyrics, he delivered the most physically demanding shows of his life, activating his songs with his hands and body. Due in part to the exertion, he began performing part of the show in what was essentially a red sequined jockstrap. The sight of this whipped the crowd into an even greater frenzy. David was certainly appreciative of the attention, sometimes signing autographs in his hotel room into the early morning hours. But the outpouring of affection bordered on dangerous. Once, he was forced to barricade himself in his dressing room for hours after a show due to a transport mix-up. The love was simply too much. Emotions reached a breaking point during the final show of the tour, when fans in Tokyo began to riot. Japanese authorities blamed Angie, claiming that she intentionally sparked the hysteria by swinging chairs and screaming. Angie claimed she was trying to rescue young fans from heavy-handed security guards. Regardless, Japanese officials demanded she and mainman executive Tony Zanetta turn themselves in to police. Instead, they fled the country, hopping a flight to Hawaii. Whether or not she was actually at fault, David was furious with his wife, declaring her a virtual idiot who possessed all the tact and finesse of a Mack truck. Just a few years ago, they'd been partners. Now there was an ocean between them, and it still didn't seem like enough. David took the long way home from Japan, crossing half the world by ship, rail, and even hovercraft before completing the 8,000-mile journey to England. He arrived home just in time to learn that the newly released Aladdin Sane had gone to number one in Britain. It was the best-selling album there since the Beatles had stormed the sales charts. His older records, even the ones that had sank without a trace upon their initial release, were selling in vast quantities. His new single, Drive In Saturday, was peaking at number three. Everything he'd worked for had come true. David should have felt on top of the world, elated, overjoyed. But he didn't. He felt lost. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. 
I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. David Bowie threw a homecoming party in early May 1973. After more than three months on the road, he was grateful to settle in at Haddon Hall. Old friends like George Underwood, designer Freddie Beretti, mime teacher and former lover Lindsey Kemp, and Ziggy Stardust producer Ken Scott all came out to welcome him back with wine, chicken, and an Aladdin Sane-themed cake. But ultimately, David didn't feel much like partying this night. A year and a half of grueling, repetitive touring had left him emotionally and physically wiped. His stage costumes were coming apart at the seams, held together with some tape and pins. David was in similar shape. He was suffering from exhaustion, and his weight had fallen to barely 100 pounds. For the first time in his life, he just wanted to stay at home and watch TV. But in just a few days, he had to go out and do it all again. Tony DeFries had booked him to play 60 concerts in 52 days across Britain. David and the other spiders grumbled that they were being worked to the bone. It was one of the few things they agreed on. Ever since the pay dispute, the camaraderie of the band's early days had evaporated. They were no longer a gang of do-or-die rock-and-roll droogs, sharing a home, a van, and a stage. Mick Ronson was kept happy with a solo deal on Main Man, but drummer Woody Woodmansey and bassist Trevor Boulder barely exchanged words with David during their concerts in Japan and the States. They'd initially boycotted these new English dates until Mick Ronson begged them to return to the fold. They agreed, but were noticeably absent from David's party. It's doubtful they were missed. One person who did attend was Tony Visconti, David's friend and former Haddon Hall housemate. They'd seen little of one another since Visconti had produced the frustrating sessions for the man who sold the world three years earlier. He found David a changed person. I recognized him, but he really wasn't the same man, he'd remember. He was Ziggy. David had created an alter ego, and it had completely taken over his life. Like a cancer, it grew and grew, threatening to kill the host. Audiences, journalists, label executives, even his own entourage, they all wanted Ziggy, not David Jones. So David simply played Ziggy at all times. He became lost in the fantasy. The doppelganger and myself were starting to become one and the same person, he'd recall. Then you start on the trail of chaotic psychological destruction. 
David was locked in a battle for his identity and his soul. He was insulated from normal daily life by a coterie of handlers, security guards, and assorted sycophants, all of whom treated him like an alien in need of constant protection. As a result, David lost touch with reality. He began to doubt his own sanity. The madness that he'd spent all his life trying to keep at bay now felt dangerously close. The UK tour did little to elevate morale. It got off to a rough start when David was booked to be the first rock act to play Earl's Court, a massive exhibition hall traditionally used for fairs and trade shows. All of the 18,000 seats had sold out in three hours, making it David's biggest audience to date. It should have been a triumph, but the gig was a disaster. The band's inadequate sound system, coupled with the poor acoustics of the venue, ensured that almost no one could hear the music. Poor seating arrangements meant that few could actually see David's elaborate stage show either. This, combined with the lingering smell from a recent horse competition, made for a less than optimal concert experience. The show had to be halted midway through as hundreds of raucous fans stormed the stage, kicking and punching each other as they went. Though he pleaded for calm while drunken revelers fought and urinated in the aisles, he and the band hid backstage for more than 15 minutes until order was restored. Rowdiness became something of a theme at his recent concerts. A show in Glasgow made headlines when couples were caught having sex in their seats as he sang Oh You Pretty Things. David thought this was fabulous, but he was less than thrilled in Brighton when fans tore out an entire row of theater seats, resulting in David's permanent ban from the venue. David caused damage to himself at another gig when he took a flying leap off a five-foot speaker, only to faceplant on the stage. He performed the encore confined to a chair, singing a cover of Chuck Berry's Round and Round through the pain of a sore ankle. While David was sacrificing his body on the stage, Tony DeFreeze was scheming yet another trip to the United States, David's third in less than a year. He claimed to have 38 North American dates lined up, with plans to double the number. He also eyed gigs in far-flung regions like China and Russia. He claimed the proposed concerts would be even more elaborate than anything Broadway had ever seen. In fact, they would challenge the laws of physics. David's technical director dreamed up a method to cover the stage with a giant two-layered plastic bubble. Gases pumped into the bubble's double wall could make Bowie seem to grow larger or smaller, then turn him shades of orange, blue, or red. At least, that was the story Tony DeFreeze put around. But he was faced with a problem. For all his talent for getting good press, DeFreeze had violated the first rule of show business, always leave him wanting more. David's many trips to the States had all but eliminated demand to see him. American seats were going unsold, and promoters worried about making a return on their investment. As main man executive Tony Zanetta would explain, David's stardom was more in the press. It didn't translate into real numbers. The American tours had never made any money. They increased David's fame, but decreased his bank account. This had been DeFree's plan from the start, but the spending was spiraling out of control. The dinners, limos, first-class hotel suites, it all added up, to say nothing of the astronomical production costs of the concerts themselves. Recent tours made back barely a quarter of what they spent. David's refusal to fly limited the number of shows he could do to recoup expenses. RCA Records, still furious at footing the bill for the last U.S. romp, refused to underwrite another tour. Main Man didn't have the resources to mount the tour themselves. The organization was hemorrhaging money, losing upwards of a thousand pounds a week. Bowie himself certainly didn't have the cash. Despite his stardom, he was forced to borrow money just to survive. 
Once, he and Angie arrived home to find their door padlocked shut by creditors. Little Zoe was sent to stay with friends just to ensure he got fed. Simply put, the price of touring was just too much. Too much money, too much energy, too much of everyone's sanity. David just didn't have anything left. His enthusiasm for the road was rapidly growing thin, as he felt like a slave to his manager's ambitions. We're going to do another tour of America this year, he sighed to one journalist. I might die, but I have to do it. Tour or no tour, a showdown between David and Ziggy was imminent. It boiled down to a choice. Would he do what was expected, demanded even? Or would he satisfy himself and his own creative curiosity? Aladdin Sane had been the closest David had ever come to repeating himself creatively. Would David remain the singing Martian forever? Would he continue cranking out spacey pop tracks for the rest of his career? For David, the thought was untenable. He was bored to death of the whole Ziggy concept and eager to write for a different kind of project. He had to move on. It became clear that he had to phase out Ziggy before Ziggy phased him out. In times of crisis, we return to our base instincts, the survival skills and coping mechanisms set in place as frightened children, desperate to protect ourselves. Through fear, we become who we were. As David struggled for spiritual balance, a memory revealed itself, barely on the threshold of his consciousness. He was a boy, maybe four or five, in his Brixton childhood home. He was screaming that he was dying. His parents leapt into action, Ordinarily, they were so stoic and still, but in this moment, their faces were twisted in worry. For once, David knew they cared. He felt their love. An ambulance came tearing up the sleepy lane, drawing neighbors to their windows to see what all the fuss was about at the Jones house. They mirrored his parents' concern. Of course, David didn't die that day. Doctors found nothing wrong, and that's because there wasn't. Physically. But the stunt had given David exactly what he needed. It suspended all expectations and responsibilities in his everyday life, and it brought him the attention and sympathy that he craved. After that, the ambulance made frequent trips to the Jones residence. Another false alarm came the inevitable grumble, but it wasn't completely fake. To David, it was a genuine cry for help. The words were simply beyond him. Now an adult, David found himself having similar thoughts. What if he died? Or rather, what if Ziggy Stardust died? David would kill him off. Or perhaps just retire him. Best to keep his options open. It seemed the perfect solution to all of David's personal and professional headaches. In the short term, it would excuse him from the upcoming American tour, which was shaping up to be a poorly attended financial disaster. By canceling these dates for creative reasons and not economic ones, he could save face. It wouldn't look like a failure. Quite the opposite. It would bolster his reputation as an unclassifiable artistic enigma, restlessly evolving before his audience's very eyes. Who else would abandon their star-making persona, which was, as far as the public knew, wildly successful? The move made him look daring and adventurous, rather than exhausted and overexposed. Retirement was a stroke of public relations genius. It offered David creative freedom and a well-deserved rest. DeFreeze loved the idea. The Beatles had retired from the road during the peak of their career. Why not David? Arrangements were made for Ziggy's final bow, which would occur on the final date of their UK tour, 
a sold-out gig at the Hammersmith Odeon on July 3, 1973. The plan was top secret and kept strictly between David and DeFreeze. Not even Angie was told of the retirement, an indication of just how estranged she and her husband had become. Mick Ronson was one of the few to be given a heads-up, but he was sworn to secrecy. The rest of the band wasn't informed that, after three years of living together, traveling together, and reaching the highest echelons of rock fame together, their services with David were no longer required. Legendary documentarian D.A. Pennybaker was hired to capture the proceedings on film. RCA also sent a mobile recording unit for a proposed live album. Ensuring there were no second thoughts, news of the retirement was leaked to a handful of trusted journalists at the last possible moment. Headlines trumpeting David's retirement were headed to the printing press as the audience were still taking their seats. The crowd was packed with huge names, including Mick Jagger, Lou Reed, Ringo Starr, and Tony Curtis, and also a young girl named Julie. Guitar god Jeff Beck appeared as a special guest on Gene Genie and Round and Round. Other than that, the show was mostly business as usual, just another gig as far as the band was concerned. But David had asked the musicians to wait a beat before launching into their trusted finale, Rock and Roll Suicide. Being the last night of the tour, they figured David would give a little speech marking the occasion. They had no idea what was about to happen. They were about to be fired in the most public manner imaginable. Having thanked the road crew and the band, David paused, cowed by the gravity of what he was about to do. And then, he plunged the knife into his most successful creation and into the backs of some of his closest associates. Of all the shows on this tour, this particular show will remain with us the longest, he said. Because not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show we'll ever do. Thank you. The Spiders shot quizzical looks at one another as they struggled through the lengthy end of rock and roll suicide. Did David say something about retiring? It was hard to hear over the dismayed cries of the crowd. Trevor Boulder mouthed to Woody Woodmansey, he sacked us. That's when it sunk in. Woody considered storming off in the middle of the song, but somehow managed to keep his composure and play through. After taking their final bows, they looked in vain for David, desperate for some kind of explanation. But he was gone, vanished, nowhere to be found. The press reaction to David's news was monumental. Headlines across the globe blared variations of Bowie bows out. Most reports quoted a main man press release issued the day after the concert, which dramatically stated that David was, quote, leaving the concert stage forever. It would take weeks before it became clear that it wasn't David himself who would never perform again, but Ziggy. By that point, few cared to make the distinction. The impending U.S. tour had gone up in smoke. David was free. Almost a year to the day after his star-making appearance on Top of the Pops, David had carried out the self-emulation foretold in the Ziggy Stardust narrative, a real-life rock and roll suicide. Ziggy had transcended fantasy, becoming so real that he threatened to consume David. Through the act of killing Ziggy, David put the masterstroke on his most enduring work of art. But it also meant saying goodbye to a part of himself and life as he knew it. After that night, the Spiders would never play together again. Within months, David and Angie would leave Haddon Hall. Their longtime home was now overrun with fans. Some of these well-wishers just wanted a hello. Others broke off doorknobs and shingles as souvenirs. 
A few even found their way inside, prowling the halls in search of the object of their desire. David couldn't stay. He had a family to think about. But even that seemed tenuous as he drifted further and further from Angie. It's telling that David's next musical endeavor was a covers album called Pinups. It's a collection of British pop songs from the mid-60s, a time when David was struggling to find his musical voice with an endless stream of failed bands. Revisiting these hits from his frustrated youth allowed him to rewrite his own history as a full-blown superstar. By laying claim to these songs, he could recast them in his own image and retroactively make himself a part of the London rock scene that had rejected him all those years ago. It gave him a sense of closure. One by one, the links to his past were severed. The future was wide open. Some would say that David's retirement was a business decision, a hacky and opportunistic show business trope. But his true feelings about Ziggy were far more complicated. David would say of his creation, he's a monster and I'm Dr. Frankenstein. He's my brother, and God, I love him. His death hit him hard. After taking his final bows at the Hammersmith Odeon, David returned to his dressing room, collapsed on the vanity, and wept. He wept for Ziggy, for his disintegrating marriage, for his half-brother Terry, institutionalized and lonely, for his father, dead far too soon, and for himself, Then his tears turned to rage. He uncorked the furious emotions that he'd bottled for years, and they erupted out of him in a violent frenzy. Chairs, tables, lamps, windows, wine bottles, and flowers, all were kicked, thrown, and spat on. Then he turned the violence on his real target, himself, clawing his neck and face. When it was all over, he stared into the shattered mirror. His mismatched eyes that stared back at him were bloodshot, and his cheek was bruised. Ziggy Stardust was dead. David Jones was alone again. For him, that was the scariest fate of all. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks so much for listening to Off the Record. We've reached the midpoint of the season, so we're going to take a brief pause in the story. Next Monday, we're going to have an interview with Ken Scott, co-producer of Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, and Hunky Dory. Throughout the course of his legendary career, he's also worked with the Beatles, Elton John, and Pink Floyd, among many others. You won't want to miss this. We'll be back to the next chapter of David Bowie's life on Monday, March 8th.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.